Brothers and sisters, I, I begin this morning with a story that I think may be known to some of you. It's called the elephant story. I think it originated in the East somewhere, maybe in India, Pakistan. And it's a story of a, an elephant that is brought into a village and blind men are asked to describe the elephant. One man feels the side of the elephant and he says, the elephant is like a wall. Another man feels the tusk and he says it is smooth and strong and it's like a spear. Another man, a blind man, touches the, the trunk and he says, I think the elephant is like a snake. Another feels the tail and he says, for sure, the elephant is like a rope. In another version of the story, there, uh, another man feels the leg and he says, the, the elephant is like a tree. Well, different applications are made of this story from the religions of Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism. Um, one interpretation is that each of these men is clamoring for the fact that he's got the truth. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. And a wise man comes into their midst and he says, well, actually, all of you are correct. But the application I would like to make to ourselves is this. In order to understand what an elephant is, you need to see the whole elephant, not just the individual parts, right? You need to see the whole elephant as a whole. And I want to relate that to the way we need to see the Bible. If we're going to understand the Bible, we need to understand the whole Bible, that it is not a mass of unconnected, disconnected stories that do not fit together, but it is one big story crafted by the infinitely wise mind of God that has one overarching purpose and goal. And so beginning next week, I'm going to launch off on a preaching project that will take more than a year, if God grants us that, and it is to do a flyover of the entire Bible devoting one sermon and only one sermon to each book of the Bible. Genesis gets one sermon, Ezekiel gets one sermon, Jude and Philemon get one sermon. That's going to be a challenge, and, and, but I'm excited about the prospect of doing that because what it will do for us, it will give us the big picture, what theologians call the meta-narrative. This is bringing us into the realm of biblical theology. Let me just explain a couple of the theologies. We have systematic theology. That's where you study each of the different doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of man, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of angels, demons, last things. And you see how all of those doctrines fit together into a beautiful jigsaw puzzle without contradiction. That's systematic theology, systematizing the various truths or doctrines of the Bible. Biblical theology, on the other hand, is the unfolding of God's plan on a timeline through history. It's a chronology. It's linear, moving through the various stages of the history of salvation to a climax or culmination. The benefit of this study, I think, will be this, that we will see how each book of the Bible fits in as part of the whole. And I think we will be made to stand back in wonder and awe at this book that God has given us. And we will realize that nothing short of a divine mind could have compiled this book. Though there are 40 different authors over 1,500 years, this is indeed the word of the living God. And I think it will impress all of us all the more by doing this study.
Now, at the outset, I agree with the theologians who say that the great goal of the Bible's plan is the glory of God. That is the end game. God will be glorified in the rescue of a people through salvation, but he will also be glorified by the judgment of those who refuse to come to him. The ultimate aim of God's plan in the Bible is the glory of God. Romans 11.36 tells us that. At the end of the doctrinal section of Romans, Paul bursts forth and he says, For from him and through him and unto him be all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And practically, that translates into our lives with 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. How can we not say that the end game of God is his own glory? But I also agree with the theologians who say that the central theme of the story of the Bible is the kingdom of God. That God is the ruler and king of the entire universe. He rules over the angels. He rules over the demons. He rules over the created earth. He rules over human beings made in his image. And that the way God establishes his kingdom among men is through covenants. One man wrote a book. I, I'd like to read it. I haven't read it yet. Kingdom Through Covenants. Today, what I'd like to do is actually re-preach a sermon I preached several years ago as an introduction to this series of one sermon per book and um, give an overview of the kingdom of God. Like I said, I think a plausible argument can be made for the fact that the central theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. One professor and um, scholar, author who has written widely on this subject is Graham Goldsworthy from Australia. I've read him. And then another author, pastor from England, Vaughn Roberts, has taken the teaching of Graham Goldsworthy and he's kind of simplified it and he's made it more clear in a book some of you have read called God's Big Picture. And I'm indebted to these men for the outline and many of the thoughts that I present and I'm going to re-preach this sermon because I think it's a fitting introduction to what we're going to do in diving in next week, God willing, to the book of Genesis. But as further introduction, before we get into... By the way, these, this author divides the theme of the kingdom into eight headings, eight stages of the kingdom. And I love it because they all begin with P, even alliteration. But accurate alliteration. But just as further introduction, the Bible is one book with one author and one message. It is one book. Though there are 66 books that comprise it, there is one main storyline from start to finish. It's one book. And there's really one author. Now, there are 40 human penmen, but clearly there's one divine author. Don't we read often in the prophets, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me. The New Testament affirms the inspiration of the Old Testament when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, and he's referring to the Old Testament because he's in the process of writing the New Testament, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. But then the New Testament writers claim to be writing the inspired word of God as well. Paul could say to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you. And you know that Peter, in his second epistle, 
says that some of what Paul wrote, although it's hard to understand, and the unlearned twist to their own destruction as they do the other scripture. So Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. So both Old Testament and New Testament writers claim that what they wrote was inspired of God, and so there's really one divine author, one book, one story, one author, one message. There's an amazing unity. We will see it more clearly as we see book by book going through the Bible, the one united message of the Bible. There's an amazing unity. When our Confession of Faith of 1689 commends the Bible to us as the Word of God, it says this, It is the word of God because of the heavenliness of its contents, the power of the system of truth it presents, the majesty of the style, and the harmony of all the parts. And what is that unified message of the Bible? Well, on the one hand, you might say, isn't it salvation? Isn't it redemption through Jesus Christ? There's a sense in which that's right. Because from Genesis 3 on, the whole message of the Bible is about salvation through Jesus, right? Jesus himself said that the Bible was about him. He said to his enemies in John 5, 39, you Jews, you search the scriptures and then you think you have eternal life. They are they that testify of me. The Bible's about me. To the two men on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus It says of him, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So in one sense, you could say, well, isn't the theme of the Bible salvation through Jesus? Yes, but consider this, that salvation is from something and unto something. What are we saved from? We're saved from our rebellion in Adam. We're saved from the devil's kingdom. We're saved from our sinful declaration of independence against God. But what are we saved unto? We're saved unto Jesus died for sins that he might bring us to God. We're saved unto being brought once again under the rightful lordship and kingship of our God, right? And that's why we say there's a a theme broader than salvation. It is the kingdom of God. Because salvation in Jesus brings us under the kingship of God. And so I believe it is safe to say that the broadest theme is the kingdom of God. How often does Jesus teach about the kingdom of God? He begins his ministry. We studied it in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The king has come, and now the kingdom is here. How often in his parables he tells us the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. And you know, the book of Acts ends with the apostle Paul in Roman custody, quote, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So we want to explore this morning that great theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God, as it has been outlined by this very helpful author, Um, Vaughn Roberts, under eight headings. And I'm also going to follow what I think is correct, his definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. How many of you were here when I preached it the first time? How many of you were not? Or you forgot? That's okay. Okay, quite a few of you were not here. But this is a message that should be preached every couple years because it's 
It's so good, not because of me preaching it, but because of this outline given by, by these brothers. So let's begin, and it's there in your outline, the kingdom pattern in Eden. The Bible begins, within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by virtue of being the creator, God is the owner and ruler over everything. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Because he founded it, because he created it, he owns it and rules over it. So creatorship leads to ownership. God is the creator, everything else is the creation, and he rules over everything. He rules over man. He directs the man and the woman in the garden, the man being the pinnacle of his creation, the man created as male and female being the pinnacle, the high point of his creation, the only ones made in his image, and he rules over man by his word. He told the man to exercise dominion over the earth, to name the animals. He told the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply. So God in the garden was king over his people, Adam and Eve. Where were they? They were in a garden paradise. What was it like? It was a place of perfect peace, perfect shalom, as the Hebrew word would have it, perfect harmony. There was perfect harmony between God and our first parents. They had fellowship with God. He walked with them in the garden. There was fellowship between the man and the woman. They were naked and unashamed. There was nothing to hide from each other. And there was harmony between the man and the woman and the creation. The animals were not a threat. The ground wasn't yielding fruit by sweat. There was harmony. Shalom in every direction. There was peace and blessing in the garden. You know, the seventh day, you know how all the days end with, and God, there was morning and evening on the first day, on the second day, on the third day. With the seventh day, there's no evening, there's no end. The idea is that there was to be a perpetual rest. God rested from his labor. He, he delighted in what he had made, and, and the plan was for man to have this perpetual rest in God, an unending rest in God. So here's the pattern of the kingdom. We have God's people. Who are they? Adam and Eve in God's place, which was Eden, the garden paradise, under God's rule and blessing. But next, the kingdom perished in the fall. We know that angels were created by God, and they predated the creation of man. At some point, there was a rebellion in heaven, and certain rebel angels, maybe according to Revelation 12, maybe as many as one-third of them, were cast out of heaven. Second Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And Jude 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. So angels were created, some fell, were kicked out of heaven, and the issue seemed to be pride. Where do we get that? Well, in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is giving qualifications for leaders in the church, overseers or elders, he says, you're not to make a man an elder who is a, a new convert, literally a neophyte. Why? Lest he fall into the, let's see, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So the devil was condemned because of his conceit, because of his pride. 
Now this prideful fallen angel slithers into the garden in the form of a serpent and he engages the woman and he casts doubt upon the word of God. Indeed, has God said, and it gets worse, he ends up calling God a liar. God had said the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you will die. The devil has the temerity to say you shall not die. God's a liar. You shall not die. God says you'll die. I'm saying you shall not die. And in the worst tragedy of history, our first parents believed and obeyed this alien voice. And by eating from that forbidden fruit, they rebelled against God, their rightful king. As a result of that, the peace and harmony in the garden was shattered. No longer peace with God. Instead, they tried to hide from God behind the bushes. They didn't have peace with each other. They were no longer naked and unashamed, but they were hanging out fig leaves to hide from each other. Nature became red with tooth and claw. Animals became a threat, and the ground did not yield its fruit without sweat. And so all the peace, all the harmony that was in the garden was lost, and our first parents were cast out of that garden. The curse upon the man was toilsome labor. The curse upon the woman was pain in childbirth. And that curse was passed on to Adam and Eve's posterity. And what followed was a trail of sin and a trail of sorrow and a trail of tears. Their son Cain kills his brother Abel in the next chapter, Genesis 4. The seeds of physical death are sown in mankind. And so we read of the genealogies in chapter 5, this constant refrain, and he died, and he died. Now, at that time, they lived hundreds of years, Methuselah being the oldest at 969, but they all died. They all died because death, physical death, entered with the curse as well as spiritual separation from God. A few generations later, God's diagnosis of the human race is this in Genesis 6. Every intent of the thought of his hearts was only evil continually, continuously, so that God destroyed the whole human race except for eight people in a universal flood and he had Noah and his family start over again. But friends, that seed was not perfect. And so a few generations later, we're in Genesis 11, and here we see the human race determined to create an alternative kingdom to God's. And so we read in Genesis 11:4, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. You see, they thought they could build back better than God. Some of you get that. Man has always been thinking, I can build back better than God. And so the kingdom of God that originated in the garden paradise has been lost. Paradise is lost. No longer are they God's people. No longer are they in God's place. They're banished from the garden. And no longer are they under God's blessing. Now, they're still under his rule because you never get out from under God's sovereign rule. But they're no longer under his blessing. The children of Adam are called children of wrath. And so that's the condition now with the perished kingdom. You with me? Pattern of the kingdom in Eden. Kingdom perished with the fall. Now, the third stage is the kingdom promised. You know, God would have been perfectly just to scrap the entire human race at that time. At the time of the fall, he owes us nothing. But we know he is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. 
and he purposed to recover at least a remnant of his lost creation. And so he begins to make promises of a restored relationship to himself, promises of a restored kingdom. And as you know, and we'll see it next week again, the first promise is Genesis 3.15. God curses the man, he curses the woman, but he brings a curse upon the serpent, who is the devil, in Genesis 3.15, when he says, And I, God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's the promise that a man, someone will come, born of a woman, who will be wounded by the devil. He will have his heel bruised, but it will not be a fatally final blow. But this seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That will be a final blow. That's the first promise when it comes to the kingdom. The next promise is given in the form of a covenant made with Noah. After the flood, God says this in Genesis 9:11, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. If God has gracious purposes for his people, if he's going to restore his kingdom, there's got to be a people to restore it with, right? So he's got to preserve the earth. So he promises, and the sign is in the, coven, the uh, rainbow that God will never again destroy the earth by water. The next promise comes, and it's much more full and long-reaching. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And then I'll read Genesis 17. Now the Lord said to Abram, God reaches down to this man, a pagan, in an idolatrous culture, Abram, who later became Abraham, and he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And notice the promises. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. A reiteration of that covenant promise to Abraham. I'll read from Genesis 17, 6 to 8. I will make you, Abraham, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So what is God promising to Abraham? He's promising to make a great nation out of them. That was fulfilled in the creation of the nation of Israel. Amos 3, 2 says, God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth. God promises, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. And he also promises to give them a land, to the land which I will show you. And he promises that he will bless him to the ends of the earth. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we have the promised kingdom. Who will God's people be in this iteration of the kingdom? The nation of Israel. Where will God's place be for them? The land of promise. And God's rule and blessing will be promised to that nation and to all the families of the earth. So are you with me? We have the pattern of the kingdom in Eden. We have the kingdom perished. Now the kingdom promised 
especially through Abraham and the covenant made with him. Now, the kingdom partially fulfilled, and I'll spend the most time here, the kingdom partially fulfilled. The road from the promise made to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, to the accomplishment of that is fraught with a lot of seeming impossibilities. If you're going to have a nation, you got to start somewhere. But there's a problem. Abraham and Sarah are old, and Sarah's womb is dead. But what does God do? Supernaturally, he gives her a child of promise, Isaac. As Vaughn Roberts says, instead of being admitted to the geriatric ward, she's ushered into the maternity ward at age, you know, 90. Um, And then Isaac, the chosen son, has uh, two sons with his wife, Rebecca. But God chooses the younger over the the older. The younger shall serve the older uh, Jacob over Esau. The problem with that is Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is a con man. That's no problem for God. God sends an angel who wrestles with him, probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, wrestles with Jacob, puts his hip out of socket, out of, out of joint, and he limps for the rest of his days. But that was Jacob's conversion experience. Instead of being that self-centered deceiver, he was a changed man. But there are still problems. Jacob has 12 sons. They were rascals. They were jealous of the 11th son, Joseph, because Jacob wrongly favored Joseph, gave him this coat of many colors. And the brothers are so jealous of Joseph, you know what they do. They end up selling him into slavery in Egypt, right? It looks like trouble for for the, the line here, trouble for the seed. But God, in his amazing providence, allows Joseph to interpret dreams. He gets exalted to being second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt. A famine comes, threatening to wipe out the family of Jacob. And they come to Egypt, get reconciled to Joseph. And Joseph becomes a type of Christ, a deliverer to his people because of the grain that he had wisely stored up in the seven abundant years, preparing for the seven years of famine. But there's still trouble. There they are in Egypt. But a pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph. My seminary Hebrew professor used to refer to himself as the pharaoh who knew not Joseph. He was hard on his Hebrew students. I'm the pharaoh who knew not Joseph. I'm going to be a hard taskmaster over you. But a pharaoh arises who knows not Joseph, and the Hebrew people are enslaved. Well, how's the promise going to be fulfilled then? Well, God, again, in his amazing providence, preserves Noah who is raised in Pharaoh's palace. And Noah becomes the great Old Testament deliverer through whom God passes the people of Israel. First, he passes over them in the Passover, killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. He springs them from Egypt, brings them miraculously through the Red Sea. Then on the other side of the sea, he enters into covenant with them on Mount Sinai. And the covenant blessings were essentially two. First, he gave them the law. And the law of God is a blessing. You live according to the law of God, you're blessed. The way of transgressors is hard, so it was a blessing. This is the way I want you to live. And he gives the Ten Commandments. He gives the law. But he also told them to construct the tabernacle, which we'll see, God willing, in two weeks. And that tabernacle was a place of sacrifice, where they could make sacrifices of animals and be restored to fellowship with God. So he enters into covenant with the people of Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. So now they are God's people, Israel, under God's rule and blessing, ah, but they're still not in God's place. They're still not in the land, right? And there's a problem with that. 
They get to the start of the land of Canaan. They send in spies. Those spies come back and they're complaining and griping. Oh, we can't do it. There are giants in the land. The people get all stirred up and God in anger judges them. And a whole generation wanders in the wilderness for 40 years until they all die. But finally, under the generalship of Joshua, the people of Israel are brought into the land. Now, they are God's people under God's rule and blessing. And now they're in the land, right? But what happens? The Jewish people in the land prove to be a mass of unbelievers. Most of them throughout their history are circumcised in body, but uncircumcised in heart. They are unbelievers. They failed to exterminate the people of the land of Canaan. They were to displace. And now they get into this sinful cycle where they commit idolatry. And they cry, God brings judgment. They cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer. They rest for a time. Then they lapse into idolatry again. And then God brings judgment. They cry out to God, another judge, idolatry again. And there's this cycle in the book of Judges. Finally, under a godly judge, Samuel, they clamor for a king. We want a king like the nations, but they didn't want a king to be under God. They wanted a king to replace God. And God was not pleased with that. So they get Saul as a king. He doesn't work out. David becomes king. He's a man after God's own heart, but he is also flawed. Under Solomon, the kingdom of Israel reaches its zenith. A temple is built. They fully possess the land of promise. They have God with them in the temple and a king over them. Things are looking good. God's people in God's place under God's blessing but it unravels. Solomon's heart is turned away from the Lord because of the foreign women and concubines. Under his son Rehoboam, the kingdom uh, splits into Israel and Judah. And you know how the books of Kings and Chronicles tell us the story of the corrupt kings. Israel, the northern kingdom, never had a godly king. Some of the kings in the south brought partial reform, but it never lasted. Eventually, as you know, God got so fed up with his stiff-necked, stubborn, idolatrous people, he sends them into exile, the northern kingdom into Assyria in 722 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah finally into Babylonian deportation in 586. So what do we have? The partial kingdom is dismantled. You see, Israel was never intended to be the final fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. God's kingdom in Israel was only to be a shadow of the kingdom he had planned. So next we have the kingdom prophesied. You tracking with it? It's a glorious pattern. It's not, I don't take credit for it, but the kingdom prophesied. Prophets, as you know, were God's spokesmen. They were his mouthpieces. He put his words in their mouths uh, the first prophet was Moses, through whom God revealed his law to Israel. After Moses, there were the non-writing prophets in the land, Elijah and uh, Elisha. And much of their work was calling the people of God to repentance, back to the law of God because of their disobedience and their idolatry. Remember the great battle that Elijah had with 450 prophets of Baal. Let the true God answer by fire. And the true God did come upon a thrice-doused altar and consumed it to show that Yahweh was the true God. 
And so they were involved in battles with false prophets and the idolatry of the people, pronouncing doom upon them, not only them, but also addressing the nations. But the message of the prophets was not merely one of doom and gloom. They also had a message of hope that God would restore his people. He would bring them back into the land. There would be a new exodus, a new covenant, a new nation, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new king, and a new creation. And let me give you some samplings from the prophets and their message of hope. And one of the great challenges, and it's a challenge to our eschatology, our view of last things, is which of these things apply to the restoration from Babylonian captivity and which are more long-range than that? So as I read these, maybe you can figure out. Some of these apply to the immediate restoration to the land. Some of them cannot apply to that. They are much more long-range. And that's one of the challenges of interpreting the genre of prophecy. But Jeremiah 16, 14, and 15 Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought us up from, brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought us, brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their forefathers. Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, promise of the new covenant. I'll just read that one verse. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel not with, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. He's going to make a covenant which they will not be able to break. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at verse 25. We'll just read a couple of verses from that. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here's one, Isaiah 65, 17, and 18. What is this about? Isaiah 65, next to last book in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 17, 18. Um, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. What is that about? Isaiah 53. You know that one well, that great messianic psalm, right? Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, where Isaiah prophesies, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. These blessings would include the other nations. Whatever God has in store, it's not just for Israel. It's not just for Judah. The other nations of the world are included. And so, as a sample, Isaiah 49, 6 he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. There will be a restored remnant of God's people, a new temple, new blessings, 
of a new covenant. Now, in 538 BC, after their 70-year captivity, God did bring them back into the land, right? The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt under Nehemiah. Under Ezra the priest, the law was reestablished. But friends, the glorious promises of the prophets, a sampling of which I gave you, were far from being fulfilled. Would you agree? Those things were not fulfilled after they returned from the land. They were still a sinful, evil, rebellious people. The temple that was rebuilt was smaller than the former one, and they were disappointed. There was no new king. The nations had not been included. So whatever the prophets were saying, some of it applies to their restoration to, to the land, but the promises were far more reaching, far reaching than that. And so we have number six of eight, the kingdom present. Oh, let me, before we go to that, I want you to know how the Old Testament ends. All these promises have not been fulfilled in Israel because the final Old Testament prophet, Malachi, says this in Malachi 4, 1 to 3, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 1 to 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, is that right? Am I reading right? Yes, 4, 1 to 3. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day is, is coming, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, so that... On that day, which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. What follows then, as we come into the kingdom present, is 400 years of silence. They're called the silent years, where they didn't hear from God. There was a lot of activity going on in Israel during that time. The various sects, the Sadducees and Pharisees were formed. Israel was trying to fight against the encroachment of pagan culture, first the Greeks and then the Romans. So there's a lot going on, but there was no word from God. From Malachi until the new covenant age, 400 silent years. But then that silence is broken. And we read about it when we studied Mark. Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's announcing John the Baptist. And a few verses later, Jesus comes on the scene and he begins his ministry with these words in Mark 1.14. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The silence has been broken. The kingdom of God now comes in the person of the King, Jesus Christ, the promised prophet, son of God and Messiah. And he is the true and second Adam. Where Adam failed in the garden, where Adam yielded to the lust of the flesh. Oh, the, the tree is good for food. The lust of the eyes, it's, it's the light to the eyes. It's, it's the, he, he yielded to the pride of life. It's desirable to make one wise. Where Adam failed in a garden paradise, Jesus succeeded in a wilderness tempted by the devil. Lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread. No, lust of the eyes. Look at all the kingdoms. I'll give them to you if you worship me. No. The pride of life, throw yourself off the temple, make a big splash. No. So Jesus comes as the second Adam. He obeys where the first Adam disobeys. 
He is the true Israel. Israel failed in the wilderness. Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. And he's the one who will usher in the new covenant in which all will know him. That's why we don't baptize infants. We don't baptize infants and say you're in the new covenant because according to the new covenant, they will all know me. And you've got to know him to be in the new covenant. They will all know me. They'll be the people of God. He will be the true temple. John says he came and tabernacled among us, Jesus did. And he makes his people a temple. Individually, you're a temple. If you're a believer, you're a temple of God. The spirit of God is in you. As a gathered church now, God is with us right now. We are his temple as his gathered people. And he will be a savior to his people. He will be a Lord to his people. He will bless them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the farthest reaching promise to Abraham. Not only did God say to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, but in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we under the new covenant are the fulfillment of that. We are enjoying that now. So this is where we're living. We are Christians. We are God's people in God's place. And you know what that place is? In Christ. In Christ. That frequent refrain in Paul's letters, in Christ, what precious words, no two more precious words in the Bible. You are in Christ. You're in saving union with Christ. You're in that place of safety. So we're God's people, in God's place, in Christ. Are we under God's rule? Yes. His yoke is kind. We're willingly submitting to him as our Lord. Are we under his blessing, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. So this is the present kingdom. This is where we're living. Two more stages to the kingdom, very briefly. The kingdom progressed and proclaimed. And I think progressed is original with me. Or we might say the kingdom pursued and proclaimed. Not only are we to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God, which we are in now, the gracious saving rule of Jesus over us, but we're to desire that that kingdom progress in us and be proclaimed by us. What do I mean by progress in us? Don't we want the kingly reign of Jesus Christ to be more full over us? Are you as Christ-like as you want to be, as you ought to be? Is the fruit of the Spirit as evident in your life as you want it to be? We all say, no, I want more likeness to Jesus Christ. I want more fruit of the Spirit, right? I want more of his kingly rule over me so that kingdom in which we needs to progress in us, we need to pursue that kingdom. We call it sanctification. But the kingdom is also to be proclaimed by us to others. The king has come. The savior of mankind has come. He is here to save a people for all eternity. And our message is, and if you are an unbeliever sitting here right now, or within the sound of my voice, my message to you as one of his servants is, come to Jesus. Flee from the wrath to come. Believe in the only Savior from sin, Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Trust in him. And in order to proclaim the kingdom, the Spirit of God has been given to us. Right? Acts 1.8. Day of Pentecost, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Only the Spirit of God can convert a sinner and regenerate a sinner. And so the Apostle Paul is left in the book of Acts 
in Roman custody, and it says in Romans 28:30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. In the last verse, what was he doing? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's how the book of Acts ends. And what is our commission? Go and disciple the nations, baptizing them. And I submit to you that that means baptizing, making disciples of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, because it's people who get discipled. Make disciples of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and then teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death till he comes. So the kingdom is present, we're in it, but that kingdom is to be pursued by us, we're to make progress in it ourselves, and we are to proclaim that kingdom Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's our commission. Finally, briefly, the kingdom perfected. The kingdom is here. We are in it, but it is not here in its final form. When Jesus comes back, his kingdom rule will be perfected. It will be perfected over our souls so that we will become, as Hebrews says, the spirit of just men made perfect. We will be perfected in our spirits. No more sin. We will be perfected in our bodies. According to Philippians 3.21, we will receive a body just like the body of the resurrected Jesus. We will have new glorified bodies. And his lordship will extend over the entire cosmos as he destroys the present heaven and earth and creates a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, says Peter. And we read in Revelation 21.1-4, passage that I often refer to, in terms of the consummate kingdom of God, the final stage of the kingdom. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, God's people in God's place, experiencing his rule and his blessing, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. Then we will be in God's perfected we will be God's perfected, glorified people in God's ultimate place of glory, the heavenly temple, under God's gracious rule and experiencing blessings we cannot even begin to imagine now in the presence of our God and Savior, in the presence of all of our departed loved ones who have died in Jesus on a renovated and perfected earth, and it will never end. And friend, if you have not come into that kingdom, I call you in the name of Jesus to come to him for the forgiveness of your sins, for a new heart that is now enslaved to lusts and selfish desires. Run to him. He will save you. He will bring you into that kingdom now, and you will enjoy his eternal kingdom forever. Let's pray and turn to a victorious hymn, Jesus Shall Reign. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for the way we have been helped by others to understand in, a, in an overview fashion, just the, the magnificent plan that you have for the ages with your kingdom being central. Thank you for the glorious, thank you for the glorious blessings we now know in your kingdom and the ones that are promised to us that we confess we cannot begin to imagine.